I think one of the things that um, is true about American politics is it's very it's increasingly driven by the demo demography of people. Um, and if you know, we know the description of what who they are um, by gender, ethnicity, race, etc., for and education, that that really is what's driving the vote. You know, a lot of those ballots have to be counted by hand and opened by hand, and that takes a lot of time. We start the evening around 6.30 when, you know, we start getting some votes in from Kentucky. Um, about five minutes later, it's two in the morning, and, and hopefully we have called the president. Have you ever watched the election night productions on TV? and wondered how the networks declare the winners in each state, sometimes just moments after the polls closed? It always takes states weeks to certify their final results. Who are the people crunching the numbers and making those decisions? At Fox News, it's Arnon Mishkin. Okay, so I have been involved in election coverage for um, longer than I care to remember. Um, I started getting involved in election coverage, I'd say, in 1984, when I worked for the um, NBC election unit. Um, in 1984 and 1986, um, and have been involved with Fox since 1998. As head of the Fox News Decision Desk, Arnon plays a critical role shepherding the team that drives the network's election coverage. There are about uh, 10 people on the decision team uh, that we have, um, and they include political scientists, statisticians, pollsters, um, and journalists. Um, they're about, and they're similarly about seven or eight people who do the polling, um, who read our the Fox News voter analysis, not so much to decide who has won the election, but to decide why and to write those stories. Roughly 20 of us are in a very, very large room this year. Um, we are separated by six feet and with um, other forms of social distancing uh, to, to ensure uh, personal safety. The stakes are about as high as they can get on election night, which means that everyone in the decision team has to sign off on every projection to make sure no state gets called too soon. Um, so during that the evening, um, the decision team divides into two teams. And once one team has come up with a decision, we make sure that everyone else checks their work and make sure that um, we're all comfortable with it. And when we can vote unanimously for uh, any given call, um, we then, uh, a script is written, a check mark goes up, and um, we make a call. In the golden hours of election night, which is the minutes before 8 p.m. or right after 8 p.m. and the minutes before 9 p.m. or right after 9 p.m., when you have the bulk of states with polls closed, um, it tends to be a, a, um, a stream of work and excitement. Basically, we start the evening around 6.30 when, you know, we start getting some votes in from Kentucky. Um, about five minutes later, it's two in the morning and, and hopefully we have called the president. In this episode, we'll be drilling down into what goes on as time flies for Arnon's team from 6.30 at night to 2 o'clock in the morning. Or at least, what usually goes on. And then, I'll talk to Niles Francis, an expert elections analyst, to hear more about what to expect from the electoral map this year. I'm Gabe Fleischer, 
and this is Wake Up to Politics. Arnott has been in this line of work since the 1980s, but the tradition of election night forecasting stretches back even farther. In the initial U.S. presidential elections, each of the states voted at various times across a period of weeks. Our first nationwide election day didn't come until 1848, which was also the first time a brand new organization called the Associated Press used a brand new technology, the Telegraph, to quickly tabulate the results. For the first time, Americans knew who their president was within just 72 hours, pretty much warp speed back then. As the decades went on, news outlets would continue to look for various ways to communicate election results to their audiences. But the media sensation of election night evolved slowly. The New York Times, for example, continued to collect election returns by using homing pigeons until 1896. By 1904, the Times began broadcasting results by turning its New York City headquarters into something of a makeshift lighthouse. That year, they attached a huge searchlight to the building. Light shining to the west meant Republican Theodore Roosevelt had won the presidency. Light to the east would have meant Democrat Alton Parker. Election night moved into the television era in 1952, when CBS aired the first coast-to-coast -coast election night broadcast. That year was also the first time computers were used to predict an election victory. CBS spent the night feeding results to a machine called Univac, one of the world's first commercial computers. The computer correctly forecasted that Republican Dwight Eisenhower had won the presidency, and election broadcasts were revolutionized forever. Another turning point came with the introduction of exit polls. I'll let Arnon Mishkin explain. So exit polls have been a mainstay of American political coverage basically since 1972. Um, and in 1980, um, one network used exit polls to make a call and called Ronald Reagan the winner in the 1980 election very early. So they've been a mainstay. And an exit poll is traditionally you pick a sample of precincts, you have people standing outside the precinct, you ask every 10th voter or whatever to fill out a, a questionnaire, and then you tabulate it at the end. But Arnon's team at Fox News is moving away from exit polls this year for two main reasons. One is that they've generally had a partisan skew to them. For whatever reason, um, more Democratic voters were likely to fill out the survey than Republican voters. And so we were able to, you know, you, you basically saw that there was a slight skew to the results. And this was not in any way a bias issue. It was just for whatever reason, they talked more to Democrats than more likely to talk to Democrats than Republicans. Um, and so we would sit there looking at data. And if we saw that the Democrat was slightly ahead, we'd say, this is a tight race. And if we saw the Republican were slightly ahead, we'd say the Republican seems to have a slight lead. Um, and that was just the reality of, of the methodology. I don't, no one ever fully understood why. And the second, is to adapt to the huge changes in how people are casting their ballots this year. Exit polls never only counted the in-person vote. Um, and while they built in a sort of small phone polls to sort of cover the mail-in and the early vote, um, in 2016, we thought that, the, that with 40% of people voting early or by mail, we thought we needed a much bigger change. That's why Fox News 
teamed up with the Associated Press to create a new system to gauge voter sentiments. They're calling it the Fox News Voter Analysis. Which is essentially a poll of 100,000 voters in America. Um, and we, we, we talk to voters um, and as well as non-voters, but particularly we talk to all voters in the same way. We give the same questionnaire and the same methodology for talking to election day in-person voters, early in-person voters, and most important, mail-in voters. But that poll will only be one of the factors Arnon and his team will consider on Tuesday night. The second input we get in many states is um, sample precincts. This year, we're not sure how valuable those things are going to be because of the growth in mail-in votes. And then the third thing we're looking at, and in many respects, the most important thing, are the actual votes that get reported by the state um, as they get counted. So how do they take all of those different strands of information and get to a place where they can say Trump or Biden have won a certain state? Uh, well, it's essentially a statistical model. And we, um, when we're sort of 99.95% confident in the estimate that the estimate we have is north of an estimate that is has the guy we, or the girl we think is going to win losing, um, as long as the difference between our estimate and uh, a 50-50 race is um, basically four standard errors. Election night is always a stressful night for Arnon, but this one could be the most complicated yet. As I said before, tens of millions of Americans have already voted by mail or through in-person early voting. And according to polls, the vast majority of those mail-in voters are supporting Democratic candidates, while most Republican voters plan to vote in person on Election Day. In some states, that in-person vote and the mail-in vote will come in at different times, and that partisan imbalance between the two data sets creates a problem unlike any election analysts have had to deal with before. That changes the entire dynamic of all our models, because in essence, a statistical model is based on you look at the data you have and you extrapolate from that to what's going to happen. So in most states, um, all our models are built on the idea if I have 20% of the data from a certain county, all I need to do is multiply by five and I'll understand what that entire county looks like at the end of the night. This year, that's not going to be the case because when you're looking at 20% of the data from a county, you might be looking at 20% of the mail-in data, in which case, if you multiply by five, you're going to get a number that's to Biden, or you might be looking at the 20% of the uh, in-person data, in which case you're going to get a number that's to Trump. While we're used to people like Arnon calling most of the key races sometime Tuesday night or Wednesday morning, the swarm of mail-in votes this year means those announcements may be delayed. Some places could take weeks to tally up their mail-in votes. And in some states, mail-in votes can continue to arrive at election offices after Tuesday, so long as they're postmarked by Election Day. So if the race is close, Arnon might not be able to declare a winner Tuesday night. Even if it's clear which way the national map is leaning on Election Night, if neither candidate has notched enough state wins to get them the necessary 270 electoral votes, the network won't be making a final call. We only make a projection when we've made final projections in enough states to get one candidate over the other over 2-7, um, and, that's, and that's the most important decision we make. That could make for a long few days for Arnon. And in the event that decision does take a few days, will you be stationed at the decision desk that, that whole time, like maybe a few days or a week? Well, I'm hoping for a nap. <laughs>
But yes, we will be here until we are, we are able to call, um, certainly uh, call the presidency and also call the Senate. If there's one thing I took away from talking to Arnon, it was how important it is that we all temper our expectations on election night. As slow as it may take, we're just going to have to wait for states to count their votes and for news organizations to make projections we can trust. Of course, there's also another element to all of this that we haven't touched on yet, how the presidential candidates will react to the vote counting as it's happening. President Trump, for example, has repeatedly said that we shouldn't wait for all the ballots to come in and be counted. Last week, he tweeted that, quote, we must have final total on November 3rd, end quote. After the 2018 midterms, when results moved in Democrats' favor as votes continued to be counted throughout the week, the president tweeted, quote, must go with election night, end quote. But that's never been how elections work. Even as smart data crunchers like Arnon are reading the tea leaves of where the voting trends are headed, it always takes states weeks to certify their final results. Election night was always much more of a media creation than anything official. But that isn't how Trump has signaled he will treat it. So the big question becomes how he will respond as counting continues after November 3rd. That's why I especially wanted to talk to Arnon for this week's episode. Election night is going to be a high-pressure night for all the networks. It always is. But Arnon runs the Fox News decision desk. How his network handles election night will likely have an effect on how their most loyal viewer, Donald Trump, and his supporters respond on this most crucial of nights for our democracy. Although I guess, like, to me, there are two things that, that kind of do make your job exceptional this year. And one is that there's a lot of people that do think there's going to be a lot of chaos coming um, from the election this year. Maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong, but there's certainly a lot of predictions. And the second is that the, the president of the United States, who could be, you know, potentially behind some of that chaos, is probably going to be watching your channel. Does that add to your pressure at all? Is that something that goes through your mind? You know, election night is a high pressure night, no matter what, no matter who's viewing, you know, there. if you make a mistake, 325 or 330 million Americans are going to know your name and they're not going to associate nice things. With you. So the pressure is always there. Um, I don't imagine that. I mean, there was pressure four years ago. There was pressure eight years ago. Um, I don't imagine that's going to affect things, but you were always thinking about the sort of pressure and it's, it's you don't take this job unless you're sort of thrive on stress. Arnon may wave it off, but I'm not the only one who thinks his role is going to be especially important this year. In fact, a column a few weeks ago in the New York Times called Arnon the last bulwark against the most frightening prophecies of electoral insanity. Before we hung up, I asked Arnon about that description. Do you view your job that way? No, because I, I really think that on election night, um, you know, Fox is committed to reporting out who has won the presidency. Um, I think that our track record on election nights is very clear. Our track record in the polling group um, from the polls that they've done is also very clear. The mission of both the polling group here and the decision group and election night is to report out who is winning, who has won, who's ahead, and um, and that's because all audiences, regardless of the partisanship of an audience or the partisanship of a viewer, they have one question, who's winning? And we hope to answer that question on election night. When we come back, I'll speak to election analyst Niles Francis about what races he'll be watching on election night and which ones you should pay attention to as well. 
Like me, Niles Francis is a freshman in college. But also like me, he's been tracking the 2020 election very closely. He's generated a huge audience on Twitter, more than 20,000 followers, for his election commentary and his political mapping. And he's also an analyst for Decision Desk HQ, a widely cited elections website. I especially wanted to talk to Niles this week because he's based in Georgia, which is going to be a key state in deciding control of the House, Senate, and White House this year. But that's something of a new development, since the state has been solidly Republican for decades. I asked Niles what's changed in Georgia and places like it that have led to new parts of the country suddenly becoming electoral battlegrounds. Well, we talk about this all the time, the suburbs, the suburbs, the suburbs. That's where we're seeing a lot of, um, and that's kind of where um, the focus has been in terms of trends. We've seen um, suburban areas become more diverse, more affluent, more educated, and they've started to become more competitive, like for a long time. And we've seen these suburban areas um, they, they've been solidly Republican, like in the Bush era, like these er these areas, these suburban areas of vote 60, 65% Republican. Now they're starting to trend left at a very, um, very fast pace. That goes back to something Arnon Mishkin told me about how more and more an American's vote can be predicted by certain traits. How different demographics were working, because I think one of the things that... Um, is true about American politics is it's very it's increasingly driven by the demo, demography of people, um, and if you know we know the description of what who they are um, by gender, ethnicity, race, etc., for and education, that that really is what's driving the vote. And so, as the makeup of suburban America has changed by race, by education, and so on, so has its political proclivities, as Niles hinted at that could have a huge impact on this year's election results. And the exact trends that Niles was describing are also playing out right here in the suburbs of St. Louis, home to Missouri's 2nd Congressional District, which is expected to be one of the closest House races in the country this year. It's where you have um, Congresswoman Ann Wagner. She is facing off against a state senator named Jill Shoup. That is shaping up to be one of the most competitive House races in the country, like um, and, and it's also shaping up to be one of the most expensive. Both Wagner and Shoup are probably the best, one of the, some of the best fundraisers um, in the country like in terms of, you know, looking at the house map. Like, they're some of the best fundraisers in the country. There are a lot of parallels that can be drawn between the changes going on in my backyard and in Niles' home state. I think we're seeing a similar dynamic play out here in Georgia, like where you have counties like Winnet and Cobb that are becoming more diverse and more educated and more affluent. Like, I think that's part of, like, you know, longer term, I think that's part of why we're seeing, like, states like Georgia, like, you know, catapult onto the national spotlight. Niles told me that Georgia's newfound importance on the national stage has already led to a surge of civic energy there as Election Day approaches. In Georgia and across the country, as Americans have begun to vote early, by mail, and in person, we've seen turnout records get shattered again and again before Election Day has even begun. I went on the first day of early voting in Georgia. I traveled to several early voting precincts across um, Cobb County um, in Georgia. Um, and the lines were all very, very long. People had lawn chairs, bottles of water, umbrellas. Um, so people were, you know, it, it was like, you know, you know how you go to Best Buy and like, you know, 
you know, Black Friday, like, you know, people are lining up to buy that new iPhone. That's kind of what it was like. Like, you know, people are very, very excited to vote. And I've never seen anything. And this, like I said, this is only for early voting. Like, you know, Georgia, Georgia, we're on track to have, um, like, you know, turnout is expected in, like, you know, the Secretary of State in Georgia is expecting turnout to exceed 5 million, which is a record. Like, Georgia has never seen that turnout that high before. I also asked Niles to give us a quick rundown of the other states we should be paying attention to as election returns roll in on Tuesday night. Um, in terms of competitive states that we should be watching, like Biden's path to 270, um, like, you know, he has um, a wider path to 270 than the president. The president, um, in 2016, he won the Electoral College by flipping three Midwestern states, Pennsylvania, um, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And all three of those states are, are tilting towards Biden at the moment. So um, the president will have to pick off like one of those states, at least one of those states, if he wants to have a path to um, 270. And that's looking increasingly hard with polls showing um, those states tilting towards Biden. But um, Biden's path to 270 is interesting. Like I said, he has the Midwestern states and he also has um, Arizona's looking competitive, Florida, Georgia, um, Ohio. He has several, there are several competitive states that the president won in 2016. Um, his path to 270 is looking, is looking wider than, um, looking wider than the president's at the moment. That isn't to say President Trump doesn't also have a credible route to victory. I asked Niles to give us what he thought was Trump's best path to 270. Um, well, he has to win Florida. He's, of course, going all in on Florida. He has to, um, like, you know, there's no path to 270 for the president without Florida. And he, um, he needs to, like I mentioned, he needs to flip one of those three upper Midwestern states, uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. He has to flip one of those states if he wants any path to um, victory in the Electoral College. So um, at least one. He doesn't have to flip all three. He just needs to flip at least one. So... But um, like I mentioned, it's all on Florida for the president. If the president doesn't win Florida, it's over. As we talked about before, this year, it doesn't only matter how states will be voting. When they announce their results could also end up being just as important. I asked Niles when we could expect results to come in from those key battleground states. Well, sure. I think Florida is pretty good at counting. Like Florida is a state, like, you know, Florida has a lot of older people, a lot of seniors. They have been using... They have been using vote by mail on a large scale for uh, on a large scale for um, for years now, and they have been pretty good at reporting the results on election night. So Florida is one state where um, I can expect um, where I think we can expect um, results on election night. Texas, Texas is another state where I think we can expect results on election night. They're pretty good with um, with counting their results. So I think that's a state where we could see results on election night. And, and depending on the outcome in those two states. Depending on the outcome in those two states, I think we'll have a pretty, pretty good idea of how the election is going to go. Um, so now, states that um, are probably going to take longer to count votes, I would expect some of those upper Midwestern states to take, um, to, to take a little longer, like um, Pennsylvania and Michigan. I would expect those states to, because um, those states haven't really been using vote by mail on a large scale for um, a long time, and this is their first time kind of um, using it on a large scale. So I would expect those states to um, take a little longer in reporting the results. Remember, in the U.S., every state runs elections for themselves. 
And as Arnon told me, every state has their own way to tally up results, including some that could take quite a bit of time. There's a, um, a, an, a sleeper race in, in Alaska, which could be decisive in control of the Senate. And Alaska is, um, I don't know if it's an apocryphal story or true, but some of the votes get delivered by dog sled. And so Alaska tends to count very slowly. So even if we don't have a winner right on November 3rd, Niles echoed Arnon in urging all of us to be patient. There are a ton of mail-in ballots and they're all going to take, and they're going to take a long time to be counted. So just be patient is my advice to everyone. Just be patient. No matter what we know on the morning after election day, you can read all about it by signing up to receive my newsletter, Wake Up to Politics, in your inbox at wakeuptopolitics.com. And make sure to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already, and watch for post-election episodes breaking down the results and explaining what happens next. Thanks to Arnon Mishkin and Niles Francis for their help guiding us through what to expect during this historic election. Happy voting, everybody! Gabe Fleischer is the host and creator of Wake Up to Politics. This podcast is a co-production of Gabe Fleischer and St. Louis Public Radio. Joe Manis is the political editor. Sound design and mixing by Aaron Doerr. 